Hello and welcome to this episode of Crofting Matters. My name is Siobhan MacDonald and this is the Farm Advisory Service series where we discuss topics that matter in crofting. Getting a croft isn't easy, whether you're new to agriculture or whether you've been in crofting all of your days. So today with my colleague Graham Fraser, we are going to discuss how to get a croft and how to keep a croft. Graham, up in Shetland, do you have a croft yourself? I don't have a croft, Siobhan. Never, uh, no, never really became available in the right place at the right time when I could afford it. And I think I'm probably too old to start crofting now, although uh, some of my clients are still acquiring crofts when they're well through into their 70s, so uh, it's maybe never too old. This podcast came about as I have lots of clients who get in touch who ask about how to get a croft, and then there's been quite a lot in the papers recently, especially about crofts in the Western Isles, you know, with beautiful views, very scenic, and they were going for way above the agricultural value. It was amazing how much money they were changing hands for. And it is difficult for youngsters to get into crofting, but it's also quite difficult for older middle-aged people like myself to get into crofting too. So I think this is quite a topical subject and hopefully we can help some people to find their way into crofting. Thinking about that Western Isles case, how much do you think a croft is worth? If there are two or three folk interested in a croft and and they're all trying to outbid each other, then, um, you know, the sky is the limit. <laughs> no pun intended with sky. You know, you can't really put a figure on it. You could have two crofts here, for example, in Shetland, one that was close to Lerwick, maybe had potential for selling off a bit of land for a house site or two, and one that's uh, an identical croft that's far out on the west side in Sanus, and there would be a completely different values. So it's just down to what, what the market thinks they're worth. You know, if you're going to advertise either for sale or for the tenancy for compensation, it's down to what folk are willing to, to offer you and what they're willing to pay. See, Crofts sometimes up in Caithness and they might be £30,000 and a similarly sized Croft on the Black Isle will be £150,000 perhaps. It is location, location, demand. location probably has a lot to do with it. And the other thing that makes crofts difficult to get is that if you're buying a tenancy then it's really hard to raise the finance for that because banks won't lend against it. Yeah, You really need to be sitting with most of the money in your back pocket or your bank account. You're not going to be able to go off and borrow very much from the banks as you say because it is croft land and and they won't take that as collateral. They won't take security over it. So yeah, it's not easy. It maybe varies in some areas but very few Crofts come on the market, the open market here in Shetland. Most of them stay within families and get passed down through the families. So uh, there's not that many opportunities crop up for somebody who is not within a a crofting family to to get into crofting. There's a difference between owner-occupied croft land and tenanted croft land. I think if it's owner-occupied, the banks are happy to lend, aren't they? I think they're more likely to. It's not always automatic, I don't think. And certainly, you know, you wouldn't get, a, a for example, a mortgage on undecrofted croft land, whether you own it or were still the tenant. They just wouldn't give a mortgage on croft land. It would have to be decrofted for the house site before they would, would give a mortgage. But I think they are more likely, particularly if you have a, you know, a, a working relationship with your bank, 
and you're buying an owner-occupied croft, then they'd be more likely to, to give you loan and, and perhaps take security against that. But I don't think it's necessarily guaranteed because croft land just makes them a bit weary. What is the difference between being a tenant and being an owner-occupier? Both now qualify for the crofting grants. At one time, only the tenants got the crofting grants automatically. Owners, as they were, had to go through a means test and show that they were of like economic status to a crofter before they could qualify for the crofting grants. Then the 2010 Crofting Act defined an owner-occupier in law, allowed the authorities to scrap the means test and make owner-occupiers eligible for exactly the same grants as tenants. And the Crofting Act defined an owner-occupier as somebody who had been tenant of the croft at the time when they purchased the croft from their landlord, their heirs and successors, anyone that they or their heirs and successors sell it to, plus their heirs and successors. And as long as the croft wasn't relet in the meantime, and then that tenancy terminated, then they would retain their owner occupancy status. If you did relet the croft to a family member, and then that family member relinquish their tenancy, you'd just be back to being a landlord of a vacant croft rather than an owner-occupier. So the owner-occupancy status can be passed on to whoever acquires title to that croft once once it is owner-occupied. And the tenants have full security, you know, unless it was a, you know, a, a more recent, there, there is, a, there is a, an ability to let a croft excluding certain rights from a tenancy without going to the, the land court to get approval for the tenancy, you can exclude, if it was a brand new let of a croft, you can exclude the right to buy, you can exclude the right to benefit from the sale of any house sites, for example, you can exclude the right to buy, to benefit from a share of any resumptions, like if the council came and took a bit of a croft for a school or a road or whatever, and you can exclude the right to assign the tenancy on so new tenancies could have those rights excluded, but most tenancies where it's a, a, an older tenancy and is perhaps being assigned on, then both the existing tenant or the new tenant, if it's been assigned, have the right to buy their croft, for example. So they can, be, they can become an owner-occupier, mm-hmm. if they so wish, by purchasing the croft from their landlord, and the landlord can't really can't refuse to sell it. He has to, he, he's, there is a legal entitlement to be able to buy the croft. So... So there's probably less difference between tenants and owner-occupiers now than there's ever been because they both qualify for the same assistance. And and I would have said that at one point in the past, if a tenancy came on the market, the compensation that was being paid was probably the full equivalent of the value of that croft where it being where an owner-occupied croft being sold on the open market because the new tenant coming in knew that he could automatically get the crofting grants, which he wouldn't necessarily get as an owner, but he also had the right to buy the croft at any time off his landlord, so if he so wished. So he very often would pay as much for the tenancy as he would to own it. I would say now folk would maybe discount a tenancy by a little bit because as they would rather be an owner-occupier. They would get the same grants as an owner-occupier as a tenant. As tenant, if they then want to become owner-occupier, it's going to, going to cost them 15 times the modernised rent, and it's mm-hmm. going to cost them a fair bit in legal fees to to take title to the croft, 
to be transferred from their landlord. So, so they would probably discount the purchase price of a tenancy by a few thousand compared with where that an owner-occupied croft that was being offered for sale. Why would anybody want to exclude areas of the croft or put in those exclusions when they do a let? Well, certainly, the, I've got one example I, I can quote from experience that I've come across is, is where somebody had the croft, but they weren't able or in a position to work it themselves, and nor was there any family keen to take over the croft, but they didn't want to break the family ties to the croft completely. So they decided on that occasion that they would offer a tenancy to a young neighbour to take on the croft, but they didn't want them to have the right to buy or the right to assign on the croft. They just gave them, they excluded those two rights from the, the new let, and that way they knew that it may take a lifetime, but eventually the croft would come back to the family. The new tenant was no longer in a position to work the croft. Then they would just have to relinquish their tenancy and the croft would come back. So it, it's, there's no, it doesn't happen very often, but that's, that's one I've come across. I guess it's a comfort for the person who's letting the croft. And because people do worry about losing the croft, you know, people think sometimes that if they sublet the croft, they'll lose it, So, which isn't true. This is another way of keeping it in the family and keeping yeah, a just bit keeping of a link to it. No matter how how small a link, it still sort of means there is family tie to the original croft. There are quite a lot of people who purchase their crofts because they think that then they don't have to meet the duties of a crofter, but that's not true, is it? If you are the official occupier of a croft, be it the tenant or the or the, the owner-occupier, you are obliged to live within 20 miles and not to, to, to make good use of the croft and not to neglect it, and etc., etc., which are the croft, general crofting duties. So it applies equally to both tenants and owner-occupiers. So, yeah, that doesn't get you... You can't sort of buy your croft off your landlord and then move to Glasgow or something like that. You know, that just uh, wouldn't be acceptable to the yeah. Crofting Commission. And you mentioned letting the croft there so what's the difference between letting the croft and assigning the croft you can only assign a croft when there is an existing tenancy so it's 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 the existing tenant transferring the tenancy to another party if there is no tenant in place so that can either be an owner-occupied croft or the time that it comes up more often where folk will consider letting is where they for some reason or other are classed as landlord of a vacant croft and not an owner-occupier. And as a landlord of a vacant croft, they don't qualify for grants. If it's going to be passed down a generation, if they just pass the ownership of that croft to the next generation, then the next generation will also be classed as landlord of a croft with a vacant tenancy, whereby if they let it to them first, then they uh, become tenants of a croft and are are eligible for the crofting grants. And if you then leave the, the croft to that, next generation in their will, they then become owner-occupiers and are still eligible for crofting grants. So it's usually when it's landlord of a croft with a vacant tenancy that that, uh, folk would consider letting a croft and creating a new tenancy. How do you become landlord of a vacant croft? How does that come about? You can end up landlord of a croft for various reasons. You, You may have you know, it may be that you or a previous generation bought the croft and became owner-occupier and then for some reason decided to let it to a family member, but that family member for some reason relinquished the tenancy at some point after that, and that leaves you as a landlord of a croft with a vacant tenancy. Or I've come across one or two, for example, where 
the tenant and their spouse approached the estate and this was going back a good few years when only the tenants automatically got the grants. When they bought the croft, they opted to put title into the, well, it was the spouse that went and bought the croft off the estate and became his wife's landlord and she remained tenant. Then unfortunately yeah. she passed away some years later and the croft was then left he was left as landlord of a croft with a vacant tenancy. So there's, there's a few different ways it can come about, but uh, being landlord of a croft of a vacant tenancy is not is not the most desirable to be. That's because you're locked out of all the potential grant schemes that can assist crofters. So that's where folk will normally look at, at letting a croft to, to try and get sort of it back to being either a tenanted croft or at some point in the future an owner-occupied croft. In my case, I'm the landlord and my husband is a tenant, so we'll need to watch and make sure that one of us outlives the other. If you, yeah. if he, he's the tenant, so if he outlives you, as long as you've left him the croft in, in your will, then he becomes the he becomes the owner-occupier, so that, that's perfect. If you do see a croft is coming on the market and being offered for sale, it is worth checking the register just to see, is this an owner-occupied croft or is this a croft that is owned but is owned as a landlord of a croft with a vacant tenancy. Now, if it is a couple that are looking to buy it, the, the obvious thing is to take title in one name and put the other in as tenant after they've bought it uh, and not to take, as I've come across where the new owners took title in joint names and then they couldn't let it from one to the other without doing a transfer of title first, which costs more legal fees from joint names to a single name to the other one to then be let the croft as a tenant so yeah so you need to establish right at the outset if you're buying a croft whether it is an owner-occupied croft in which case you'll become owner-occupier or if it's just classed as a landlord of a vacant croft then that's all you'll be when you buy it yeah i think it's important to get a solicitor that understands crofting when you're purchasing a croft or purchasing the tenancy of a croft. Uh, there are so many things to look out for that if the solicitor is not well versed in crofting, then you can get in totally quite a pickle. Agree. Yeah, definitely agree with that. So we've also got cases where, just talking of owner-occupiers, people have purchased an owner-occupied croft and then they've discovered that they can't get hold of their grazing share or their grazing share is somewhere in the ether. How does that come about? When the original tenant bought their croft off the landlord, then the disposition will will say whether or not they bought the right to graze the common grazing along with the croft. Now, if they bought the right to graze the common grazing along with the croft, they can graze sheep. That, that, that share is attached to the croft and they can graze sheep in the hill without paying any rent because they've already bought the right to graze, graze the common grazing. But if they bought the croft without buying the right to the, to the common grazing, then effectively they are still tenant of the hill share and would need to pay an annual rent for that hill share. If they then sell the croft, the hill share is not theirs to sell. They can only assign the hill share because it's effectively a deemed croft. It's a separate deemed croft and they would have to assign that deemed croft. There's a few where that's not happened and you find out, you know, a generation or two later after the croft may have changed hands a couple of times that, that somebody who died 40 years ago is effectively on the register still as tenant 
whether it's even on the register, but uh, it, the register might need to be updated to put it on the register, and the commission will say that so-and-so that died 40 years ago is still tenant of the Hill share. And the same can happen with apportionments, in that if the apportionment is a piece away from the croft, the landlord might refuse to sell the apportionment with the croft. The apportionment then becomes, yeah, it would be a tenanted deemed croft in its own right. This starts getting quite complicated. Somebody may have bought the croft but not bought the Hill share, and then they subsequently take in an apportionment. The, the, the apportionment is a separate deemed croft. But even if they bought the hill share with the croft, when they take in the apportionment, because they don't own the soil or solum, in legal terms, of the, of the apportionment, they, in law, they automatically revert to being tenant of that apportionment and the apportionment becomes a, a deemed croft and they have to pay a rent on it. It's, it's quite a bit of a minefield there. You need to be sure you know what you're buying if something comes on the market, whether the solum of an apportionment or the hill share are for sale along with the croft or not. A few cases where people have become owner-occupiers and they've wanted to use the hill share, but they discovered that the hill share belongs to somebody who passed away years ago. And trying to get that sorted has taken years uh, really difficult and it's often very difficult to get hold of the landlord as well or the landlord's agent to sort things out that's often really tricky too well the commission's first suggestion would be that the executor of the deceased should dispose of the you know seat to succession and then dis- then whoever succeeds to the, to the tenancy of the hillshire can assign it but very often, if it's that long ago, the executor can be dead as well, and there's no executor. And in that case, they say you have to apply to the court to get a new executor appointed to be able to deal with that. And that's, yeah, so it's quite a minefield to, to go into. The other alternative is if the new tenant did get on and trusted the landlord, then the landlord could declare the hillshire vacant or the tenancy vacant. But you need to be sure you can trust them that they would then let it to you as the new tenant because once it's declared vacant the landlord really can let it to whoever they choose. Just going back a step there you mentioned borrowing against decrofted land so can you go over what decrofting means and then why can you borrow against decrofted land and not land that's still in tenancy or owner occupied? So Either a tenant or an owner-occupier, they can both apply to decroft land for an existing house, or if they have can get have gone as far as getting outline planning permission, can apply to decroft a house site, for example, um, or to, that, that hasn't been built for a house that hasn't been built yet. Once the land has been decrofted, the commission approve it. There's limits on how big an area they'll let be decroft. They won't let whole crofts be decroft, but they'll let up to sort of point two of a hectare for a for a typical house site be, be decrofted. If you go over that, you need to make a, a good case as to why it needs to be bigger than that. But once it's decrofted, then that is land that the banks can take a standard security over. So they then can can uh, use that as security against your mortgage and the, in, and the value of any property you build on that decrofted land can be taken as security. That's really where decrofting comes into it. There is another another term that folk may come across, which is resumptions, which is effectively does the same thing as a decrofting, but is applied to via the, the Scottish Land Court and is usually only done by landlords when a croft is vacant, 
or under under a few different exceptional circumstances. But normally, if it's the croft, they'll be applying to decroft rather than to resume a piece of land. So for folk looking to buy a croft or to buy an assignation of a croft, then if there's a decrofted site, sometimes it does make it easier to buy because you can you can offer so much for the land and then so much for the yes. decrofted site. Yes, and very often, you know, if there is an existing house on a croft and if the house site has been decrofted, that can be a big percentage of the value. You know, so they, they can borrow against, use that as security for any borrowings they need to, to purchase, but obviously would need to be able to fund the the value of the land that what the land's valued at over and above that themselves without without going to the bank or less unless it could be covered by a personal loan an unsecured personal loan if you're purchasing a croft tenancy then you need to be approved by the crofting commission if it's owner occupied you don't need to be approved by the crofting commission is that right the assignation is an approval process, so the commission have to agree before they, before you become the tenant. So if you were silly enough to put in a assignation proposal that said that the new tenant was going to live 100 miles away, well, they're just not going to approve it. So it has to be somebody who's, you know, reasonable chance of working the croft sensibly, has, has a bit of a bit of crofting experience or said they're going to go on various courses or whatever. Owner occupancy is just a notification process. You are notifying them that you are the new owner, but they then subsequently will expect you to fulfil your crofting duties. On the crofting census, being honest and told them that you were living 100 miles away, well, they would start to say, well, you've either got to relocate to take occupancy of the croft or come closer to the croft, or you really need to consider selling the croft or putting in a tenant. But you don't actually need approval to take ownership of the croft. And in practice, if you're applying for the tenancy of a croft and the crofting commission have to look at that and consider it, if you're waiting for months for that to happen, but you've said that you're going to purchase the croft, at what point does the money change hands? So for the person selling, how do they know that that you're going to be accepted as a tenant and on the other hand, how do you know that having paid your money, that the croft will come to you if you're accepted? Yeah, not easy. I would leave that one to the lawyers, <laughs> to myself, to sort out. And, you know, as part of the offering and acceptance process, that there would be a, a process written into that saying whether the new tenant pays over the money to the, the solicitors for them to hold until the tenancy has been approved. I think that would be that would be quite a, a normal way to do it, I would think. But I would I would tend to leave that to the lawyers yeah. to sort out. You often see advertised crofts which are bare land. So what on earth is a bare land well, croft? Bare land croft would be a croft that either never had a house or if there was a house built on the croft, the house has been decrofted. And what they're selling is the rest of the croft excluding the house. So it is a a croft with no house. It's a bare land croft. That's that's my understanding. And does it make any difference if you're looking for a croft? Is that a desirable um, thing? Well, obviously you're not getting a house with it. And if you so if you're already housed within a reasonable distance of the croft, then that's not a problem. Or if your intention was all along to build a house, then as long as you're confident that you would get planning permission, then you could apply to decroft part of the croft to build build the house once the planning was in place 
and you might even qualify for Croft Housing Grant assistance if you're if you're not adequately housed at the moment within a reasonable distance of the Croft and are going to be actively working the Croft and, and making good use of the Croft, then you might potentially qualify for up to, well, it depends on what area you're located in, but in the more remote areas such as Shetland, it can be up to £38,000 of grant towards a new house. For people looking for a Croft, where do you look? How do you know what's coming up for sale? Well, I suppose just where advertised via solicitors and uh, the likes, property centres, or word of mouth if you're already living in the crofting community, just you know, put the word out among crofters that you are interested in getting a croft, and you never know what that might trigger. If there's if there's somebody who's uh, you know maybe thinking to wind down their crofting operations and they have more than one croft, they might say, oh. Well, I could I could think about selling you a croft. You never know what these sort of conversations can trigger. So yeah, I think it's it's just uh, putting word out there that you are looking for a croft and just watching local papers and property centres and things like that to see what what might come on the market. The Scottish Crofting Federation were keeping a list of people who were interested in getting a croft and people who were interested in passing a croft on. Yeah, a sort of a matching services would be a good way to go I think but yes helping out at the FANC and offering to do different jobs showing your keen yes yes <laughs> and willing to be sort of be an active member of the crofting community that always uh, goes down well and and there are a lot of older crofters who, who are very keen to see young crofters getting a start uh, you know I know I know of quite a few folk have gone out of their way to pass a croft to a young crofter rather than necessarily just selling it on the open market. Yes, there have been a few cases of that recently and I've had folk who've who've left crofts in their will to youngsters and yeah, it's really good to see and really thoughtful of people to do that and give people a start because it's not just croft but also a means to build a house and get croft house grants. Just gives gives a potential family a base in the community and and stop uh, too much centralisation away from the rural areas. Of course, there's also responsibilities for common grazings when you take on a croft. That's true, yes. It's often forgotten about. Because if you have a share in a common grazing, then as a shareholder, you need to contribute towards the maintenance of the common. That's often forgotten about. And so it's a bit of a shock to new crofters who are maybe not used to to working with a common that they have to contribute towards that depends on the regulations for the common but most of them will expect all the shareholders to contribute towards maintenance and sometimes also you need to contribute towards any improvements as well and so say you need a new fence in the common then everybody would be contributing towards that and sometimes it's just the active shareholders or the people who have cattle that contribute towards something that's just for cows or people with sheep contribute towards a new fang. But the regulations probably say that everybody needs to contribute. So it's something to be aware of as well as the, the normal kind of three duties of a crofter. It's something else that people need to, yeah. to think about. There was no such thing as inactive shareholders. Everybody was active right. and therefore yeah. the cost was shared by everyone. So. Yeah. Another method in is to get a sublet 
and that's an easier way to, for people to get in. And our sublet is now just for five years. The, the regulations allow them anything from three to ten years. The, the commission will tend to encourage it to be for not more than five years because the sublet is meant to be a temporary measure. And it's really just to allow the, the tenant the opportunity to figure out what they want to do longer term, whether they're going to reoccupy the croft themselves if there's something that's sort of stopping them from doing that at the moment, or whether they then intend to assign the croft on permanently to someone else. So normally the commission will want to keep it down to five years. But if you had a good enough reason, you know, if you had a, say, a, a 12-year-old son or daughter who were going through school, had ambitions to go off to college or university, and then might be coming back to the area, might or might not come back to the area in their early 20s or whatever, then you might be able to argue for a 10-year sublet so that you keep the croft available until they finish their studies and decide whether or not they want to return to the area and take on the croft. So it, it does come down to individual circumstances, but the norm will be five years. Also, you know, there's sometimes folk will sublet it for five years and then at the end of the five years, they're still not in a position to take on the croft and they go back and they apply for another, a subsequent sublet to let it for another five years, for example. That will normally get automatically escalated up a level at the Crofting Commission before a decision will be made and they'll have to give a very good justification as to why they need a second sublet to keep on the, the subtenancy going for another five years. There is an equivalent for owner-occupiers, which is the short-term let, and the same sort of principles apply normally. That could be for three to ten years, but the Commission would normally look for that to just be for five years. But uh, and, and if somebody was living, they did try to go back for a second sublet or a second short-term let, they would have to be living close or you know within the 20 miles of the croft. The, the, the Commission certainly aren't inclined to grant that if they're an absentee in effect, if they're living a long way away from the croft, they'll want them to, to pass the croft on to somebody who's living within the 20 miles of the croft. If you do a sublet or take on a sublet, can the same things apply that you were talking about earlier? You know, Could somebody say that you're taking on a sublet, but you're not, you're not able to use the house? For yes, instance? you can sublet a whole croft or part of a croft. So you can exclude any any bit of the croft or, you know, just sublet half a croft or whatever, just whatever whatever suits you and the and the new subtenant. So yeah, the house can be excluded from a sublet. If you're if you're still living in the house on the croft, then that's not a problem. In US, because quite a lot of people are in agri environment schemes, it's quite good if we can get sublets for six years, because by the time you've applied for the agri environment scheme, you're looking to start the following year and then it's a five year commitment. So often we find sublets are for an automatic five years and it just doesn't fit with the agri-environment schemes. The the fact that you want to apply for an environmental scheme as justification for why you need it to be six rather than five, and I think the Commission would take that on board. Although people complain about abandoned crofts and crofts not being used and how hard it is to obtain a croft, there are also new crofts being made, such as these woodland mm -hmm. crofts. But I don't think there are very many of them. I haven't seen any advertised, no, actually. No, the, the only, apart from the, the likes of the Forestry Commission and that creating a few crofts, most of the time I've come across new croft creation is where, for some reason, the land was never registered as a croft, but the family have seen it as a croft in all but name, 
for several generations and they have a maybe a younger generation taking over who maybe was hoping they might get grants towards improving the croft, doing up the fences or even building a house. And so you have a, a father or a, or a mother creating a new croft to let to the next generation to make it uh, easier to access uh, assistance towards uh, developing the croft. So it's always been within a family nearly that I've been involved in, in croft creation. I've never, I don't think I've ever been involved in a croft creation where the croft was then let to uh, an outsider. Is it a long process? Is it difficult to do? It's probably no longer than most of the things that you need to apply to the Crofting Commission for. Um, <laughs> but yes, it does take a little bit of time. And it has to be, you know, when you're creating a new croft, it has to be to let it. You're then expected to let that croft. You're, otherwise, you're just left sitting as landlord of a croft with a vacant tenancy, which gain, you know, doesn't gain anything. So it's, it's a two-stage process where you have to create the croft and get the creation of the croft approved. And then you have to then put in a letting proposal to let that to whoever it is that you were intending to make the tenant. So rather than just one thing that you're waiting on approval for, you're actually waiting on, you, you have to do them in succession and you're waiting on two approvals. So it, it does take a while. It does probably take a year, I would think, to get it through. For folk looking for a new croft, I guess our advice is get involved as much as possible in the local area if you're not already there and if you're already there offer some help at the FANC and otherwise keep a lookout in papers and solicitors adverts and save up all of your money in case you have to buy it and, and just make everyone know how keen you are to be a crofter and just put the word out there so that you know you never know who who might hear and might think oh I'll maybe speak to them if they're interested in taking on one of my crofts that I'm no longer willing or able to work. If you're looking for a croft, I hope this has helped explain what to do and what to be aware of. And related to this topic, also look out for our podcast on succession, which is another complicated subject. So thank you very much. It was good to chat to you as always, Graham. And I hope you'll join us again on the next Crofting Matters. Let's hope we get a good few new keen young crofters coming into crofting. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us for Crofting Matters. There's more information in the show notes below. If you enjoyed this, please like, subscribe and share. You might also enjoy our other podcasts, such as Stock Talk, with timely advice and expertise. Join us next month for the next edition of Crofting Matters. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.